This is Amateur Logic, episode 142, for April 15th, 2020. This episode of Amateur Logic is brought to you by MFJ, the world leaders in ham radio accessories at mfjenterprises.com, and by ICOM. Get out and be active with the perfect QRP companion, ICOM's new IC705 and its optional multifunction backpack. Great to be back with you all tonight. Boy, it is... um, I don't know that we've done it exactly like this before, but we've got the Hollywood Squares edition going on tonight. (laughs) Everybody got a square but me. I feel left out. (laughs) It's hip to be square, isn't it? You could always go inside and Skype back out to to the studio there. Well, I could, or I could just, uh, yeah, I could Skype in on my iPad right here. There you go. Well, interesting times here. If you're watching this in the future, well, obviously we're recording this during uh, the the COVID um, quarantine, I guess you would say, here in the U.S., uh, where everybody's, well, I think all the states now maybe have a shelter-in-place program going on. They do here, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they do down where he mill is. I don't know about up there in Canada, Mike, or are you, I know you're working from home. Has the country shut down? Well, uh, I know Ontario is, and I think most of the provinces are as well. Um, we've been under a... Um, I forget what the correct term is that they're using. Stay at home, I guess. Um, so I've been go. I'm going to be going into week four on Monday, um, where I've been working from home. And um, the list of essential services that is businesses that can remain open just got further tightened up a little bit uh, the past week. So we haven't we haven't peaked over here yet. Yeah. Um. Yeah, things are maybe starting to make a turn here in the U.S. Maybe. Not not oh, all boy. the country. Yeah, it's hard to say. Anyway, uh, just, you know, everyone out there be safe. And we're going to try not to talk about this subject. For most of the rest of the show, we're just going to move well. Actually, I know in a couple of places we probably will. So maybe I shouldn't have said that, but... <laughs> Yeah, we'll anyway, try to keep it to a minimum. We'll try to keep it to a minimum because everybody's kind of, um, well, they, they've heard plenty. So oh, yeah. let's get on into the show tonight. Oh, you know, anytime we're doing a live stream, I guess I should say that. We've got something else happening at the same time. What is that, Mike? 
Well, we've got AmateurLogic.tv slash chat, which is the official chat room. And the usual crowd is usually in the uh, chat room to, for your entertainment. And when I'm not, uh, when I'm not on, on camera, I'm usually in there stirring it up like the rest of them. <laughs> okay, yeah. He's been known to do that a time or two. Tommy, what if you're not in the chat? Well, if you're not in the chat, you're missing half the fun. But it's up to you to decide which half. Okay. <laughs> Email almost took the bait there. I could, I could see it. I, I was wondering what the cheaper option was. <laughs> the cheaper option. We can only afford a quarter of the fun, not a half. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess. Unless it's on sale. Yeah. Let's get on into it, and Tommy, to put the subject right back where it was, you've got uh, an announcement you wanted to share with everyone tonight. Sounds like fun. Well, yeah, I do. Um, Well, everybody knows by now the Dayton Hamvention for 2020 has been canceled. The uh, Worldwide Radio Operators Foundation, that's almost a tongue twister, Hamvention QSO party coming up on the Saturday of Hamvention. It's in memory of Ron, W8ILC, who became a silent key just two days after Hamvention 2020 cancellation announcement. Ron attended every Hamvention since the beginning. Um, anyway, it's a 12-hour event on Saturday, May the 16th, and sounds like a lot of fun. I'm planning on participating. Uh, you can find out more information and see the rules and so forth at www.rof.org. So I'm definitely going to be there. Uh, participating for that yeah sounds like a fun event and we've actually talked about maybe doing something special here on the amateur logic uh stream channel all well during the time that hamvention would have been you know we've got a number of episodes and videos and shows recorded live there uh that we've produced over the years and so sometime over uh, that weekend, we'll probably do some streaming here and uh, play a lot of Hamvention content for you that uh, you may not have seen before, or maybe you're just tired of watching the news and want something different, and you can go back and relive That's those me. those old Hamvention memories there. <laughs> yeah, I know you said we weren't going to miss, I mean, mention the, the outbreak and the... Uh, yeah, too ne- much. But never this mind. Goes- <laughs> never mind that other thing I was saying. Just okay. Yeah. All right. The um, so uh, Jeff Bearden, one of our Facebook viewers, posted a uh, article in the Facebook forum of Amateur Logic uh, about the things happening from one of our uh, basically one of our fellow broadcast buddies on QRZ Now, Jason. And he he's got a video out there basically showing some different services who are doing ham radio testing online i mean i know in my case my club is actually hosting meetings now online instead of showing up at the clubhouse because of uh social distancing and so looks like you know ham radio testing and studying and other classes and trainings are doing the same thing so i think we're going to see a lot more of that being online uh yeah i would would think we are and you know that that may become semi-normal in the future too i mean as 
as people get through this and uh, accustomed to the workflows of doing things online, you know, we, we, it's a good chance a lot of that will be taken advantage of in the future. I will say one thing, though, that this crisis has uh, really brought to the, um, well, I won't say the forefront. I already knew it was there, but Internet service, man, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's not that great for a lot of people, you know. You you see a lot of reports and, uh, um, you know, TV personnel and all trying to do their shows from home or maybe on a phone or something with a bad connection. And, you know, they they have had to drop out people because the connection was so bad, probably more than we have now. So... Yeah, there's there's room for some improvements on the grid there. So maybe, you know, maybe the, uh, all those frequencies we've been giving up for rural broadband, maybe something will actually be done with them. I don't know. Yep. It's just a pipe dream. I, I, I was going to say, um, you know, we were always, uh, ham services and ham bands are always uh, good backup for uh, voice and in the past, it's always been strategically aligned with other services, whether it was federal or state governments. Well, I'm seeing that future being somewhat of a data-driven backup to the Internet. Hmm. <laughs> Rather than just voice, because, you know, as it is now, we're already converging all of that. So maybe, though, you know, some of the changes in the, the speed of the symbol rates and data rates that the FCC is mulling over and looking at and trying to figure out maybe maybe we'll be that backup in the future. Oh, that's an interesting thought there. Maybe so. Although it does mention the unmentionable topic a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just just a little, but it's okay. This is from our buddy uh, Wayne Lindgren, uh, W1WBL. Uh, he says, Hi, Tommy. I hope you and the crew of Damager Logic and families are safe surviving this unprecedented phenomenon we're going through. That, that's the end of that part. Anyway, I looked through the Amateur Logic Wiki, and although not experienced with the wiki, found it great, but was unable to find any show notes on counterpoise for antennas. And I don't believe we've covered that in the past, Wayne, so you, you probably did it right. Anyway, I just bought an ICOM IC7100 and an MFJ apartment antenna that utilizes counterpoise wires. The MFJ instructions show how to connect them, but I'm interested in the theory behind their use, so I might employ them in some cheap uh, experimental antenna DIY projects. I'm thinking it might be a good topic for one of your shows. And that is actually an excellent idea, Wayne. appreciate that. And I've, I've put it on the list of topic ideas, and uh, either myself or one of my cohorts here will probably do that sometime in the future. Uh, it's a great idea. I appreciate that. Okay. Said the magic word. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of your cohorts might do a little explaining right now. Yeah. And th this is this is the high level view here. This is not going to get really into a lot of the details. You know what a, a dipole antenna is, uh, say for for the HF bands. You just got. Two wires out there. Can't see that, can you? 
not too good. Not too good. This will probably even be worse. Okay. Put my glasses on. Wow, there I you go. I can see that. I can see that. That's yellow, believe it or not. <laughs> so, you know, you got you got two elements on a dipole antenna. That's because, wow, look at that. Uh, that <laughs> it's black truly a magic there. marker. Yeah. I can make it <laughs> blue or any color they I want. don't call them that for nothing. So, anyway, you've got two elements there on your dipole antenna. If you've got, uh, say, just a, I'm holding up something now. It doesn't look like it, but I really am holding up something in my hand. There we go. Sure, if you've, wow. if you've got a, a whip on your vehicle, you know, that's one element of the antenna. The other element is, is the vehicle itself, the ground plane, which you could think of as a counterpoise. So... What I'm getting at there is your antenna's kind of got to be balanced, you know. You've, you've got to have two elements on it there for it to properly radiate. You can't really just put out one element and then that's going to radiate out and go into space like you wanted. It needs another one to bounce the signal off of, to work with, to, to form a, a radiation pattern and uh, put the energy out. So... That's my explanation right there, is if you're just putting up a vertical, you got to have a ground plane or, or a ground system for it to work against. And that's what a counterpoise is. So uh, that is a very high-level view of it. So there is a topic that I'm sure uh, Tommy will be explaining in the future here in a little more detail. Yeah, should definitely will. Well, Mike, tonight you had, I guess all day, you had some video editing woes there that you and I were discussing just before the show. And I sure did. But tell us, tell us what happened there. Well, I was using an archaic uh, video editing program, which shall remain nameless, Um <laughs> because um, I'll be embarrassed to mention it for lack of a better explanation. But uh, anyway, needless to say, it ended up kind of being a disaster. The, uh, the audio portion got out of sync with the, with the video slides. And as I tried to fix it, things tended to get worse. So we're going we're gonna to wing it a little bit tonight, and we're going to do, uh, do it manually. Kind of like the Gordo way, I think, without the keyer. It is very similar to that. So we'll get started out right here off the top, and I think this one will explain what we're going to talk about, huh? Yeah, we're going to talk about OpenWebRx, and uh, some of you may know what it is, some of you may not. The actual uh, program was originally written about uh, six years ago, and it was uh, done by a fellow in, I believe, Hungary, and as of uh, December of uh, 2019, he basically said, I've done pretty much everything I'm going to do with it, and he's kind of ceased development of it, although he has archived all of his work on GitHub. You can still reference GitHub for all of his information. So that was Andres Retzler, H-A-7-I-L-M. And then if you fast forward to February, 
Open Web RX project was taken over by a fellow named Jacob, and I'm sorry, Jacob, if I butcher your last name, Ketterl, Delta Delta 5, Juliet, Foxtrot, Kilo. He's picked up the project as of February, and he's released the next, uh, I guess, version, you could say. It's still in beta. It's at version 0.18 of the project, so... He's rewritten a lot of the code, and I think it's exclusively written in Python 3. One of the things I think that what happened was the project got forked at some point, and uh, that may be some of the reasons why Andres lost interest in it. One of the other projects that was a part of this other fork was Kiwi SDR. Kiwi SDR was available for the BeagleBone. I think it was the black. Originally, it was the the black and then the green. Once you get things set up, you can register your site so that it's uh, publicly accessible over the Internet. So there's, I don't know how many. There, I'm assuming it's several hundred of Kiwi SDRs that are out there. Kiwi SDR and Open Web SDR RX. Kiwi SDR being on the top, Open Web RX on the bottom. They're very similar. They look very similar, and that's because they were all derived from the original code. This is the supported hardware, so you've got pretty much everything that's popular being uh, probably the most popular, the RTL SDR. So even those uh, cheap little dongles can be used uh, with this project. I happen to be using a derivative of RTL SDR and NESDR Smart, and uh, I'm using those in conjunction with an SDR Play RSP1. So you can support multiple hardware as well, which is another cool feature. So this is my setup, and you can see there's two NESDRs, and one of them's uh, set for 2-meter, the other one's set for the 70-centimeter band, and then you can see the SDR Play RSP1A on the top there, and it covers all of the HF bands. Also pictured there is, uh, in a case, it's a Raspberry Pi, Pi B3+, is really needed if you're going to decode audio, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So for now, I'm using a, a Raspberry Pi Model B, just a regular Model 3B, and it seems to be fine with the WSJT modes. Before we move on, a question on that. So it will not run on a uh, 4B? I'm not aware... If it runs on the 4B, I know the image I downloaded is running on an older version of Raspbian. So oh, yeah. I doubt very much whether or not the image I'm using will support the 4, but I suspect that it will be very shortly supported at the rate this project uh, seems to be moving. I don't think it'll be long before we have an image for the, uh, for the 4. And there's a list of some of the features it uses CSDR-based demodulators for AM, FM, CW, sideband, BPSK, BPSK63. Just a couple other little tidbits there. The uh, the passband can be set from the GUI. So much like HDSDR, you can grab the edges of passband uh, that you're listening to, and you can spread it out to widen or narrow if you want. You can move them in to narrow the bandwidth of the receiver. It's all written in uh, HTML5. What that means is it should work on most of the current uh, web browsers. I've tried it on uh, the new uh, Microsoft Edge, the old Microsoft uh, Internet Explorer, uh, Chrome, and I believe I tried it on uh, Firefox as well, and it all worked uh, just fine. Hmm. So it works in uh, Chrome, Chromium, and uh, Firefox for sure, but it also worked for me on uh, on the new Internet Explorer and the old one as well, as far as I could tell. 
also uh, WSJT based demodulators for FD8, FD4, WSBR, JT65, and, and JT9. And it can also decode DMR, Yaesu System Fusion, POXAG, DSTAR, and NXDN using DSD-based demodulators for those last two. And there's also uh, support for APRS as well. I'm actually uh, watching it live right now on 20 meters uh, decoding FD8. And you can see it does live decoding in a little text window. Gives you a little magnified view of the waterfall just above it. There's uh, an image you can download. It's it's pre-compiled. There's there's nothing fancy about it. Uh, you just download the image. So this is the website, and these these will all be in the show notes. Uh, so don't be too worried about uh, copying down the web address. It looks like uh, there's a fair amount of activity with these updates. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see an image for the Raspberry Pi four uh, before too long. And as I was mentioning, uh, once you download the uh, the image, you're going to need to burn it onto an SD card, or I should say, a micro SD card. And my old favorite is Win32 Disk Imager. I know there's there's other ones out there you can use. However, I tried the one that's on the Raspberry Pi organization site, and I can't remember exactly. I think it's Raspberry Card Pi Imager or something to that effect. For some reason, I made an image with that application, and it didn't work for me. So I ended up using Win32 Disk Imager. So if you find that you're using the official uh, image burner from a Raspberry Pi and it doesn't work for you, try the Win32 Disk Imager. So once you have your image on a microSD card, it's going to appear on your network with the host name OpenWebRx. I generally like to use the, the dotted IP address. That way I know where, what things are which, especially if you have more than one of these running, um, it's kind of nice to keep track of which one's which. So I generally tend to, to use the dotted address. Um, so I'm using a 192.168 number, which is on my local LAN. The Pi is set automatically for DHCP, so you don't have to statically assign an IP address as long as you've got a DHCP server of some kind. And, and most routers, I think at this point, are, are enabled by default, so it should pick up an IP address. I intend on doing a, a guide, like much like we did with the um, the Pi DV uh, several years ago. Just because I found that the information is all over the place, a lot of it being in GitHub. Open Web RX can support multiple devices, and as you saw in the slide earlier, I had two um, RTL SDR dongles in addition to the SDR Play, and you can select them from from the menu there, as you see indicated on the screen. One that's currently handling two meters, another one that's handling seventy centimeters, and the SDR Play RSP1 is is handling the uh, the whole HF band. There's several other buttons you can play with. It's pretty uh, pretty standard. Uh, you can zoom in and out. You can widen narrow your band spread. I guess you could say you got your volume, your squelch. This looks nice, Mike. They, uh, it looks like it's come a long way since when I played with that uh, maybe a couple of years ago. But it looks like they've done a good bit of work on it since then. It's pretty impressive. Um, I don't know if that's... Oh, that's just the... Um, there is a Groups I.O. page, which um, is probably a good thing to, to follow, being that it's it's somewhat still in the beta stage. Um, you'll, you'll find lots of uh, questions that are answered uh, online and on the uh, Groups I.O. forum. Um, so that's a good spot to look for information. So these will be in the show notes, too, that 
you can go get them after the show. Did you happen to notice while you using it whether it does spots or sends things to like WhisperNet or PSK Reporter that kind of stuff? I haven't delved into it that far to find out whether it does any reporting. Um, my first response to that would be I don't think it does, okay. but I don't know for sure. Um, I think it's strictly a, a one-way only uh, system. Okay. Where where it will receive and uh, decode and and that's it. I don't think it does any reporting back over the web. All right. I bet that thing would run nice on a Pi Four when they get around to doing that. I'm kind of curious if you could boot that thing on a a three and then do a apt get dist update or upgrade rather. I think the command is and then put the image in and boot it off on a four. That's a that's a good question. Um, I don't have a four to try it on. Otherwise, uh, I'd give it I'd give it a try. But um, yeah, I guess it's it's time for everybody to 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 pull it, the old SDR uh, RTL SDR dongle off the shelf and and dust it off and and download a, a download a, a WebX Open WebX RX uh, uh, image and and burn it onto a, a micro SD card and and have some fun with it. Yeah, that. I think this is probably the most I've ever used. I know it's the first time I've used those two little dongles, um, and only the second time I've used my SDR Play. So, oh, yeah. um, period. I'm sorry. You th- that's a, only the second time you've used your SDR Play at all for anything. Yes, sir. I know. I've been oh, I've been wow. kind of living under a rock. I think uh, for the most part. I haven't had much uh, much for uh, for for radio time uh, these days. You'd yeah. think I would, but um, getting everything set up and organized. Um, and I know we weren't going to talk about it, but I've been printing like a madman. Um, apparently, they're in they're in high demand. Uh, headbands for face shields. Yeah. Um, headbands for masks. My wife's been making masks uh, on her sewing machine, so yeah, I've been I've been busy with other things, uh, trying to answer the call. Um, I know um, my quota is uh, three dozen, and I think I'm just over one dozen now, and that took several days to do it uh, to do that. So I'm I'm keeping busy that way. But um, have we got a have we got ten seconds so I can show the folks uh, the live version? Maybe. We can try. Uh, yeah. You're seeing the waterfall uh, for four or for 20 meters on 14.0754, to be exact. And right now, you can see, uh, you can probably see my mouse pointer. It's set to digital mode. And if you pull down the drop-down list, uh, you can see all the all the digital modes that it's capable of decoding uh, on screen. And here's the live data. Um, you can you can scroll back all the way uh, for when for when that session was first active, um, and you can see even even just decoding uh, FD8, uh, you can see the CPU uh, uses uh, popping up to about uh, seventy. Well, there's seventy two percent, which isn't bad, but I've seen it as high as ninety. Um, just listening to regular. Um, not non-digital uh, that is analog SSB um, so being able to uh, to stream the audio seems to be 
more of a more of a chore than it is decoding the digital data for uh, for text. And it's it's really cool. Like you can you can be anywhere in the house, and just as long as you log into that web address of the Pi, uh, you've got that that screen, and you can you can change uh, modes, you can change uh, devices. Um, there's probably not going to be any activity on here. Uh, there's my have you tried, my, my have you tried it from picks. your phone, Mike? Uh, I have not. Uh, I haven't. I haven't tried it on the phone. I didn't know how useful the waterfall display would be, or even if I could tune in properly, uh, which is with such a small screen. Thanks for that. I know we pushed you way out of your comfort zone because this was supposed to have been recorded in advance with plenty of time to go through and do all the editing. And just a few minutes before the show, uh, when it was obvious that the video wasn't going to work out, I said, uh, "Have you got some stills we can show?" And we'll just kind of, we'll just kind of <laughs> make it up. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate you doing that, going the extra mile there. That's it's a really interesting looking project. And I think we were talking earlier, and yeah, it's not really recommended right now, security wise, that you expose this thing to the internet. So. Uh, yeah, I I wouldn't be comfortable recommending that at all right now at this point. I I think there's been some some chatter in the uh, forums about security and that is a concern uh that's probably going to be addressed in a future uh uh release. But um anyway, I I enjoyed doing that and as it turned out, um and I know it wasn't what I originally planned on doing, but as a side to that, um I think just because of such a nice job that was done on this piece of software, it warrants doing a guide uh, like we did for the uh, for the uh, DV or Pi DV board. Um, so um, look for that in the future, and hopefully uh, we can get that posted um, and make give uh, some folks a jump start, especially if they're not uh, you know that used to dealing with Linux. Yeah, yeah, that that would be great. Well, I had cool. something. Nice job, Mike. Awesome. I had something here I wanted to mention. As long as we're not mentioning certain subjects tonight, (laughs) that was a that idea just didn't work out at all, did it, Tony? No. no. (laughs) Uh, You know, Field Day is going to be coming up. Well, I don't remember the exact dates now. Is it in June? I believe. Yeah. Yes, usually around the end of June. Yep. Yep. Well, the ARRL has uh, sort of addressed it. You can find this at ARRL.org slash fill-day. And they're saying with the 2020 ARRL Fill Day, one of the biggest events of the amateur radio calendar, just 12 weeks away, the ARRL officials are monitoring the situation with the coronavirus very carefully and paying close attention to all the information and guidance that's being offered by uh, CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And because of this unique circumstances that we're going through this year, um, this can be an opportunity for you and your club or group to try something different. You know, Phil Day isn't about doing things the same way year after year. Uh, and they're saying use this year to develop and employ a new approach that's in line with our current circumstances. 
And ARRL officials strongly believe that the uh, that following the guidelines from your local, state, and national health care professionals will help ensure everyone's safety in the coming weeks and months. And again, that's at ARRL.org slash fail-day. And I didn't read the whole thing. That's just a, a brief summary of some of the highlights there. But uh, yeah, it sounds like Phil Day could end up being different this year. Uh, Tommy, we may need three tents. Yeah, and three air conditioners. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, the air conditioner part for sure. Well, we're going to be back in, in just a moment. First, let's get a message from MFJ, catch our breath, and well, we got a lot yet to go. With products from MFJ, Ameritron and Mirage amplifiers, Cushcraft and high-gain antennas, and Vectronics, the MFJ catalog has become the ham's wish book. From antenna analyzers to Yagis and everything in between, MFJ's got you covered. It all starts with the proper power, and MFJ's selection of power supplies and power distribution products offer just the right solution to fit any need. Every station needs a suitable antenna system. MFJ, Cushcraft, and Highgain have the most choices. Mobiles, mag mounts, lip mounts, mirror and rack mounts, duplexers, screwdrivers, bug catchers, beams, dipoles, zips, portables, hex beams, cobwebs, mast, monobanders, tribanders, multibanders, verticals, yaggies, ringos, loops, rotators, antenna switches, and more, you'll find them all here. Of course, MFJ's got SWR and watt meters, which are a staple for hams. One of the most wanted accessories is an antenna analyzer. Again, no one has more variety than MFJ. From the famous MFJ-259C to sophisticated graphene vector network analyzers. MFJ also has the most popular antenna tuners in the world, from inexpensive portable units to legal-limit automatic antenna tuners. MFJ has a tuner to match any antenna situation. And for the ham who wants a little extra get-up-and-go, Ameritron and Mirage have the most linear amplifiers by far. HF, VHF, UHF, solid-state or vacuum tube, manual or automatic tune, there's an amplifier designed to fit any ham shack or mobile installation. With well over 1,000 items, there's something for every ham. Visit MFJEnterprises.com today. I heard from Richard Stubbs with MFJ uh, just a couple of days ago, and he said we could mention that uh, the plant is still fully operational there, but they're not currently doing the public tours, uh, understandably. But they're still shipping all over the country. So if you need some MFJ products, uh, hey, go ahead. uh, Check out MFJEnterprises.com right now or your favorite MFJ dealer and get those pieces you need. Because I know, uh, well, I know one guy in particular right here that's been working on his ham shack. And, yeah, you know, you might need that extra ballon or or counterpoise wire, or or who knows. But uh, thanks, MFJ, for sponsoring Amateur Logic here. And, Mike, speaking of things that we're not going to talk about again, and we can't seem to get away from that subject, you had uh, something you wanted to mention. World Amateur Radio Day, April 18th. On Saturday, April 18th, 2020, 
1200 Zulu to 2359 Zulu, Radio Amateurs of Canada is organizing a special on-air event to celebrate World Amateur Radio Day. Every year on April 18th, Radio Amateurs Worldwide take to the airwaves in celebration of amateur radio and to commemorate the formation of International Amateur Radio Union on April 18th, which originally took place, uh, I think, on 19, what's it say, 1925. Wow. wow. Uh, World Amateur Radio Day is a day when IARU member associates can send or show their capabilities to the public and promote global friendship around amateurs worldwide. The theme of World Amateur Radio Day is celebrating amateur radio's contribution to society. And this is especially relevant given the important role amateur radio will play as the current global crisis unfolds. Cool. Where can you learn more about this? Radio Amateurs of Canada website, rac.ca. Well, that's good information there. And the 18th, well, that'll be, what, next weekend. I've got an email here that came from Eric K4PYR. And Eric said that um, after watching the last episode and recognizing that others were having difficulty locating 2.5 millimeter screws, he thought he would pass along some information. He needed four of them to mount his Raspberry Pi and a Sunholder RAB mount. Uh, this is. A photo of that. Yeah, that's a really nice-looking mount there for an experimenter. Since he had misplaced the screws that came with it, he looked at online sources, and they wanted more for shipping of the screws than he thought it was worth. He went to Adafruit site and found a box of 380 pieces of 2.5-millimeter nylon, both black and white screws, and risers at a very reasonable price, and he now has enough screws, nuts, and risers to mount multiple Raspberry Pis for different purposes and different projects. If a couple of users will purchase a set and share, the overall price comes down radically. There's no need to worry about shortening anything out since these are nylon. We're going to go down to uh, the land of cheapness, Email, what what is your segment this month? Did you see his ears perk up when you said cheap? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) The land of cheapness has been uh, working, like you said, in the shack. I did do some rearranging and brought a new uh, laptop out there. Some pretty good capabilities adding to the shack and rearranged some things. And this time... I decided to uh, continue on my trek of seeing what was uh, free out there uh, in the software world. And someone in the chat room last show asked me, hey, you ever do anything on SSTV? Well, I put the cheap digital interest, uh, as I'm studying for my extra here, lots of stuff about fast Fourier transforms and protocols that uh, never used before and i decided and, and george i think you even mentioned drm the last time mm-hmm. we were talking or somewhere maybe it was on ham college or somewhere you said something about drm so i went and did the uh cheap thing found some free software and got together with my buddy glenn in the chat room kg5cn and we did some digital sstv check it out 
Amateur Logic TV. Due to a request in the chat room, as well as my own studying for the extra exam, I decided to cover a topic today, slow scan television, in this case, the digital parts. The software I decided to check out this time was EasyPal. That uses the DRM protocol, or the Digital Radio Mondale protocol. To get started, I decided to call my buddy KG5CEN, get on the air with the software, and check it out. And uh, look for our features and see what it's capable of and uh, how it works. I obtained the software from GWH, G0HWC site, um, SSTV. Uh, he has software download links right at this page here where you can uh, browse to it and download the software, which is free. If you click this link here and then scroll down a bit past some of the stories he has out there, um, you'll find a link to download EasyPal DRM. The latest one is 2014, a little bit old, but it does work. I'm using my icon with the signal link to key the rig, and me and Glenn decided to get up um, on two meters with a pretty good propagation between us. Once the software was installed, I entered my call sign and then set up the software to use my signal link uh, for RX and TX audio. And one of the first features we used was to send each other digital pictures. In this case, it does let you take snaps from your webcam if you have one or pick files. And another cool feature I noticed was that it lets you select the quality of the file, therefore the size and the duration of what you send over the air. Uh, some It does vary a bit. Unlike its analog cousin for SlowScan TV, this is digital files being sent digitally, so the picture is exactly what you send, minus the snow and other artifacts. There's even error correction features in that'll let you resend pieces of the images that are missed during a normal transmission if that occurs. Plus, another unique feature is that you can actually ID and draw text in the waterfall. If you notice the uh, uh, picture to the left of the uh, digital picture being sent, you can actually uh, draw and put text in there as well as pictures. Here's a sample of what that sounds like as you're transmitting it over the air. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it's the alligator. Another feature that we found is that you could simply type text and send it uh, to the other side, including files of text. 
files containing text or text files, and you just send that right over as well. Along those same lines, there was also pre-built forms that you could use and fill out text as you were typing it and um, just fill out that form and for the income types of operations. And there's even a print button. So once you get the form on the other side, you just simply print it and give it to who you need to give it to. There's even a chat feature built in where you could take turns sending and transmitting, receiving so that you could uh, simply have a keyboard-to-keyboard chats. While there were some quirky aspects of the software, um, you won't catch me complaining, especially due to the price of free. Certifiable email. (laughs) Never get tired of that. (laughs) <laughs> I, I did not expect to find what we did with that software. One one night, Glenn and I were just staying up, going through the menus, and we said, you know, somebody in the chat room just said it perfectly. It's kind of like a digital fax machine. That's exactly what it's like, especially with the way you can type text on the waterfall and send out the uh, forms, and it pulls it up on the other side. It, it, it was interesting. Um, and... I mean, it's not, it's not perfect. It's, it's like some of the other digital modes where it requires pretty good signal. And yeah. DRM does work with HF pretty good, but you've got to have some pretty good signal. Yeah, you know, I've been wanting to try to decode some uh, DRM shortwave. And that's the reason I kind of got to talking about that. And, you know, it's not really here in the U.S. or I don't guess in Canada either. There's a couple of things that say they are they're using it if you go look at um, some of the web directories on DRM. But when you go to their website, you find out, oh, they've been testing it, but no idea of, of when they'll be doing a test or anything. So I do want to try it, though, to, to see what it sounds like on a shortwave station. I know it's big, you know, overseas, real big in India, I think. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of uh, foreign broadcasts that are in DRM that, you know, that are only taking that, whatever it is, the 3K or what, you know, it's very low bandwidth. At least the ham version uh, of it is. Uh, I'm sure there's wider um, bandwidths, and I've even heard people doing, like, multiple stations within stream. So, yeah, uh, there's a lot of foreign stuff out there, and if it's not a pretty good signal, I'm thinking 7S7 and plus, it's going to be hard to decode. Yeah. I, I would think you're probably right. So, um, well, maybe one of these days I will hit a band opening if if ever such thing occurs again, and <laughs> get some good enough propagation that uh, I can actually try to to pick up some of those broadcasts. Because I just like to see what the quality is like. You know, it's supposed to be pretty good, from what I understand. Well. We're going to be back in just a moment because, hey, there's more to go. And I, I did mention shortwave, didn't I? Hmm. wonder what that's about. Well, first let's get a message from ICOM. Get out and be active with ICOM's new IC705 and its optional multifunction backpack. The IC705 is your perfect QRP companion as you have base station features and functionality at the tips of your fingers and a portable package covering HF, 6 meters, 
2 meters, and 70 centimeters. This compact rig weighs in at 1 kilo, or just over 2 pounds. With RF direct sampling for most of the HF band and IF sampling for frequencies above 25 megahertz. 5 watt battery operation with BP272 or 10 watts with a 13.8 volt DC supply. Modes include single sideband, CW, AM, FM, as well as full D star functions. A large 4.3 inch color touchscreen and live band scope with waterfall. Integrated GPS with antenna and GPS logger, micro SD card for data storage, it comes standard with the HM243 speaker microphone, and it supports QRP and QRPP operations. The perfect accessory for the IC705 is the LC192 optional backpack with a special compartment for your IC705 and room for accessories for soda activations or just a day in the park. Visit icomamerica.com slash amateur for more information about this and all the great ICOM radios. It's a, not an email, it's actually a tweet, and it wasn't actually directly to us, but we were tagged in it, so that makes it fair game. It's from our buddy John, K2BAG. You know he takes the hat on the road a lot. Um, so he says the Amateur Logic hat's not on the road. It has a new Q- QTH. A DM33XP, his shack's up and humming, and he's made a few FT8 contacts. Thanks to Randy K7AGE for the rack idea while I work towards a permanent shack. And I picked this because I actually like the rack idea right there. That's pretty nice. I'm thinking about uh, doing something similar here uh, over in the corner where I've got all my some of my extra stuff, extra gear. But uh, it's an interesting idea. And it yeah. uh, looks... I uh, think John uh, relocated from New York to out west somewhere, I believe. Um, oh. Anyway. I better, missed that. Better weather. Yeah. Hmm. I've always but, wondered uh, what an amateur radio hat rack looked like. Now I know. Yeah, there it is, <laughs> right there at the top. Yeah. <laughs> He's the got hat the hat. 2.0. He's got the ham shack hotline in there, too, I see. I've got an email here from John KD2OWJ. And he said, hi, George. I saw your show with Ray and the new ICOM QRP radios. I enjoyed it. And I wanted to ask you a question about building. I want to build a 300-watt solid-state linear amplifier without having any surface mount components. Do you know of any books that would have instructions on how to build one? I was thinking I could drive the home-built app with the new ICOM QRP radio. And he's talking about the ICOM uh, IC705 we just saw there. What do you think? Any ideas? Well, you know, I didn't really have any any real good ideas other than, yeah, that, that sounds nice. So I asked Mike because I know he's been talking about building a solid-state app for a while, and he came up with some resources here. Communications-concepts.com has some nice-looking things. That's a 300-watt model, I believe, right there. Not a bad price, and there's a range of voltages that it will operate from. It's not a book, because I don't know of any books. There may be some out there, but I haven't run across them. But you're going to need parts, and if you can find somebody who's already put the kit together you got a good choice of finding all the parts you need. And they made other models, too. I think, what, they've got one that maybe they had a 1,000-watt one, didn't they, Mike? 
Uh, they did, and the, and these guys have been around forever, longer longer than I've been a ham. And I don't know if they've ever exhibited at Hamvention, but they used to print a, a little catalog, a five by seven inch uh, form catalog. And then I used to look at all their uh, their kits and all their components. They carry a lot of hard to find things, especially those those ferrite beads for winding the uh, transformers. Uh, they're they're somewhat hard to find, um, and they uh, they generally carry them. And I also believe they carry the RF output transistors as well, and pretty much, I think anything you need um, to build. But you know, uh, you mentioned books, and I was thinking, why why not dig through some of the older ARRL handbooks? Because I know over the years they've featured a number of uh, home home built amplifiers. Um, for, for different uh, power levels and and different uh, frequency ranges over the years, so it might be a worth might be worth taking a look into the AWRL handbook for something like that. That's that's possible. You know, I was thinking while I was looking at that, you would need a pretty big battery to run a one kilowatt QRP amplifier. <laughs> yeah. True enough. Uh, and another link that you sent was a QRP blog, and they talked about a 600-watt broadband HF amplifier that looked pretty nice, too, and that's just using newer devices, I believe, the LDMOS. Yeah, I think if I was looking at building one, that certainly is a design that I would certainly seriously consider. It's it's really well done. In fact, I think he won an award for it. And those LDMOS uh, devices, they're they're pretty much indestructible. In fact, um, I saw a video once, and it was by NXP, uh, one of the makers of one of those devices that uh, is capable of producing, I think, 1,200 watts. And while it was operating at full power into dummy load, the guy put a screwdriver across the output and shorted it out, and it survived. Wow. And I thought to myself, if, if an amp can, can survive that kind of torture, that just about covers anything uh, an amateur radio operator could throw at it, I think. you Yeah, you would think. Well, I have another video here. This is from our WikiMeister. Dan, N9LVS. This is a project he did a while back, and he said we could share the video with you here. It's uh, on his YouTube channel. This video is making an on-air light for your ham shack. I think we've all experienced this. You're trying to get that weak station out there, you got the headphones on, and all of a sudden somebody pops in, and then starts talking to you. So that's why you need an on-air light. So how do we go about constructing one? Well, I came up with a neat little circuit and a couple items that I got off Amazon. The circuit uses a little single-pole, single-throw switch and a relay. The relay is connected to the power supply for the ham shack. The switch is so that I can turn the light on when I'm recording something. I've also got a little light indicator to tell me when the light is on from the inside. So what are we all going to use and how are we going to put it together? So I picked up some things from Amazon. First of all, I picked up the light. That was a little hard to track down, but I was able to find it. The next thing I tracked down was the lettering. Standard 2-inch lettering was going to work just fine. Then a can of lacquer. That would seal the letters to the light fixture. Once I was done with all that, this is what I ended up with. The back side of the light looks like this. First thing I wanted to do is find the center line on that door. I use a magnet as a stud finder, and it works pretty darn good. Put my two screws up on the wall. Next thing I did was I put up the bracket. 
made sure that it was nice and level. Then I drilled a pretty good hole for the wire to go through. In my case, there wasn't a sill plate above the door, so it was just a hollow cavity. On the other side of the door, I pulled the wire through a small box. I also put the reed relay in there, as well as the light. In my case, I used a four-conductor flex wire, two wires to control the AC, and two wires to come from the power supply. Connect the other end of the relay to the power supply, and voila, there he goes, an on-air light. And that's all there is to it. I hope this video has been helpful. And 73 from N9LVS. That is a really cool looking light. I mean, that looks like the real ones. It does. Nice. Well, I guess it is a real one. But, but knowing Dan, I, I'm a little surprised that he didn't uh, wire up the door, doorknob so that if somebody touched it from the other side of the door, they'd know not to turn it. <laughs> well, I think he didn't want the noise when he's recording, I think, maybe. But, wow, that that is nice. Really nice looking project there, Dan. Well, I got some splaining to do. Now, Uh-oh. you know, probably by now most of us have seen software-defined radios, and we've seen spectrum displays and, um, you know, have some kind of idea of what they're showing us. But do you really know? Hmm. Today, we're going to look at how to interpret what you might be seeing on an SDR waterfall display. There are parts of your signal that you should understand. These all make pretty good sense, but I don't know really that it's been demonstrated before. So first, I just want to take a look at that. To transmit, I'm using my ICOM IC7700. To receive and display the spectrum, I'm using a SDR Play RSP Duo with the SDR Uno software. And I'm also going to be using a small audio oscillator to generate some signals. What we're looking at right now is an AM carrier that's being generated by my IC7700. You can see the big signal right there in the middle is the actual carrier frequency you might notice off to either side here, there's a couple of little peaks that looks to be roughly around 120 hertz. That is hum. That's a harmonic of 60 cycles. And I realize that I've got a little bit of hum in my signal. I didn't trace it down before we started here. I mostly wanted to get on into the demo that we're going to do, but just be aware those two little peaks there are caused by hum on my signal. So this is an AM carrier. You can see it clearly there. What would single sideband look like? If I key my transmitter up, I really should see no signal here at all. I don't see a carrier, but I still see that little 120 hertz component that I mentioned earlier. That's probably a noisy power supply. Now if we apply a tone here, Let's put in, say, 1,000 hertz. Well, exactly what you might expect. There is a little peak there right at 1,000 hertz. Let's drop it on down to 100 hertz. There it is, and it's so close to 120 hertz that you can't really see that hum there anymore. This is covering it up. Let's go back up. This is 500 hertz. That's right where you would expect it to be. Let's increase. Let's 
Let's go up to 2 kilohertz. And exactly what you would expect, we're seeing a 2 kilohertz peak right here on the left-hand side of where the carrier should be. You know, in single sideband, the carrier is suppressed, so we don't see a carrier. But we do see this sideband out here that has just a 2,000 hertz component on it. There is no matching sideband up here on the upper sideband half because we're not transmitting upper sideband. Let's increase it to 2,800. That's what you'd expect. 3,200. And it's gone there. And that's because the transmit filter on this rig is set to be a little bit lower. I think it actually rolls off around 3,000 hertz. So we're not passing any frequencies above that. Now let's take a look at an AM signal. There's the AM carrier. And we can see those little 120 hertz blips there. Unwanted, but okay for our test here. Let's put in 1 kilohertz. Oh, look at that. We have a 1 kilohertz spike here on the left and on the right. And that's because this is AM. AM produces two sidebands. So you can see we've got a peak there on either side. And you'll notice that they are both about the same level, minus 54.9 dB. Let's look over here on this side. Uh, right right at the same amount. So that's what you would expect to see on a, on a good AM transmitter with a good antenna system. In this case, I'm running into a dummy load. If that antenna system is good and broadbanded, you're going to see the same exact thing in the upper and lower sideband. If we go on down to say, well, here's 420 hertz. You can see we've got essentially the same thing there. Might be slightly higher here on the lower side band. That could be some asymmetry in my audio gear here that I have preceding the transmitter. And if we look as before at increasing frequency, 2000 hertz. Yep, same deal. It's on both side bands. There are 2800. 3200. We've got a little bit broader filter here on the transmitter for AM. If we go up to 4200 hertz, yeah, it's gone. There's, uh, there's no modulation there. So that's essentially what you're going to see. If we're modulating this with voice, we're going to see a lot of frequencies all at once right there in the display. This is voice modulation of the AM transmitter. That's not exactly what you would see on an oscilloscope. This is more what a spectrum analyzer would display for you, except both sidebands there. We're seeing the signal on both sides. For real low frequencies, those will be right next to the carrier. For higher frequency signals like S's, you notice those go out further from the carrier. So. This just verifies what we were displaying with the tone. The reason I showed you how these tones look is because I wanted you to understand exactly what you are seeing on a spectrum display. This particular display is the auxiliary spectrum display of the SDR Uno software. 
There's another display that doesn't give you near this resolution where you can't really zoom in and see the individual audio frequencies there like we can on this one. The reason I showed you all this is I wanted to explain what it is you're seeing on a spectrum display in regard to audio frequencies being offset from the carrier frequency. And now I want to show you a phenomenon I noticed recently when listening to shortwave or WTWW. You know, shortwave and AM signals do experience fading at night usually, and you can actually see that on the spectrum display. Notice that the waterfall display trickles down. The most current audio is at the top of the waveform, and history trickles on down. Your favorite songs are a click away. WTWW.us. Click requests. Here's another one of our listeners' favorites with an instant request. In an attempt to avoid copyright issues and YouTube takedowns, we're going to do something a little different here. This will be a song that probably most of you have heard many times, but we're going to play it backwards. All I want to do is show where the fading occurs. So keep in mind as you watch this that the waterfall is going to be going upside down. The current information that's currently playing will be at the top of the waterfall, but since the audio is going backwards, so is the display. Notice that sort of diagonal area that I've highlighted there with an oval. You can see that the signal level in the sidebands has decreased significantly. Keep your eye on that as it scrolls on up to the very top of the waterfall and you hear the signal fade. Here comes another fade that's even a little deeper. If we notice what's going on in the waterfall, this area of faded signal right here is sort of diagonal. Now, keep in mind that right here at the top of the waterfall is actual real-time playback. If the signal was coming down, it fades first above our carrier frequency. So this sideband here becomes affected. And we can see that fade spot just go on through and come out the other side here in the lower sideband. We only get a complete signal fade right here in the center between the two. Because while the upper sideband is faded out here, we've still got some signal in the lower sideband and we'll be hearing that. Uh, also, when the lower sideband is faded here, there's still signal in the upper sideband. But where those two cross right there, you know, we've got a little area right in here where we really don't have much signal one way or the other. So we could listen to either sideband and we would only hear the fade when that particular sideband faded. That's what I wanted to show you. The fading is a phasing type of issue and you can see it affects the higher frequencies first in this case and then goes on down into the lower frequencies. And as it does, the higher frequencies start reappearing. 
See if you notice that this time. Since we're playing it backwards, it's going to appear right opposite on our screen here. Okay. Wow. Professor Thomas, that that was the best uh, explanation and visually uh, pleasing explanation of, of, of that material I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, thank you. It, it took quite a while to pull that together and to kind of, well, I, I noticed it over several nights, that little diagonal fade through there. And I said, you know, that's where the signal is phasing because it doesn't, it doesn't like a fade all comes on at once. It, you know, it's kind of frequency dependent as um, the ionosphere is shifting around and, and different things are happening. A lot of times when you stop and you work on a video like this and you explain things, you actually learn something about it yourself. And so it was. I, I don't I know just, the name. Right. I don't know the name of that song you were playing backwards, but it sounded like he got a truck back, his wife came back, and his dog came back back to life. Yeah, no, I don't. That's not what he was singing. Do, do any of y'all know? Let's let's play. Name that backwards tune. It could have been John Denver. Nope. Oh man. Nope. No, no guesses. Hell, okay. Well, you had a guess, but this was a wrong guess. It was cheap, though. Didn't 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 really hurt. That was Amy by Pure Prairie League. So, uh, I do, I do. I happen to love all of the visual aspects of using the the displays, the spectrum displays. So that I love that kind of video where you can just see when you see the concept of what you've learned in theory that that explains some things. And I know, you know, you're pointing out the fact that the, the oval shape, when in fact, when you drew that oval, it's the high frequencies that are fading first, then it's coming in towards the center mm-hmm. to the lower frequencies. And, you know, it kind of makes me wonder sometimes, cause I've always heard that the propagation coming from Skywave is kind of a mix between horizontal and vertical polarization, like an oval mm-hmm. phase, you know? So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you you could see it pretty plainly there. And, you know, it's uh, phasing is, there's frequencies involved in that. So you could actually so. see it approach and pass there. I'm not far enough away from Nashville that I get a solid signal on WTWW all night long. It's good, you know, uh, earlier in the evening. It's very strong. But. Between 9 and 10, this time of year, it starts fading like that. And I just happened to notice it, you know, because uh, um, it, was, it was very interesting to me. At first, I, did, I didn't pay attention to it. And then I noticed, wait a minute, that keeps coming back around, and it's the same thing every time. You know, when when you've got that oval like that, at a diagonal, as long as there's some signal on one side, Ben, you're still hearing the station. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's why it 
it doesn't fade out completely the whole duration of, of that happening there. And you can use, if you've got synchronous AM detection on your receiver, or you could use, uh, say, your sideband filters. Sometimes if you choose either just the upper or the lower sideband, it's best with uh, synchronous AM, but you can do it with uh, upper sideband or lower sideband. You may find that you don't hear the fading as much. You know, you really don't have to have both sidebands to decode the signal. Um, But, yeah, that's the other point I was trying to make is both of those sidebands should be identical. And that's a big thing with uh, when we were starting to do AM stereo. uh, the, The stations that did it had to go through and work on their antenna systems and their matching network to make it broadbanded enough that both sidebands, you know, would, would match up and and be the same signal level. So, um, I, yeah. I find that um, slowing down the AGC on your receiver makes a big difference for uh, fading signals on AM as well. Yep. Uh, Kevin is asking, how would this work with AM stereo? Um, well, you know, there's a number of things involved in there. You want both sidebands to be the same level, and you want the group delay. And what group delay is, if if you say you had a uh, graphic equalizer, you know, you've got all your different frequencies there, all your knobs. You can adjust those and get the signal level, you know, where everything's kind of flat, you know, all the way across. But if your antenna system is not good and flat and linear on both sides, there'll be some phase shift on some different parts of the frequency bands that'll, that won't match up. And the AM stereo kind of had some problems decoding that. The other thing is, um, I don't remember if the con system, there were four different systems, and we ended up choosing the Motorola Sequam system here in the U.S., I think maybe one used, you know, one sideband for left and the other for right. I'm not positive about that because we didn't use that one. But the one we did use, the Sequam system, it was just regular AM, except, you you know, you tried to make your bandwidth as good and balanced and, uh, as you could. And then they had a 25 hertz subcarrier on there that contained only the different signal. In other words, they took the left signal and they subtracted the right signal from it. And that's the same way we do it in FM stereo. But So you've got a difference channel. You're transmitting a, a, a signal that only contains a difference between the left and the right. And then your receiver combines that back with the mono signal and it splits it out stereo. And that's, that's the way FM stereo works, except they're not doing it with the 25 kilohertz. Uh, or excuse me, a 25 hertz subcarrier. Um, but and that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually I'll say something else too. I think we talked about this a while back. The I've noticed some of the digital. Speaking of analog modes, I've noticed some of the digital modes that are on HF seem to incorporate something in their patterns of data. That also seems to follow some phasing rate, if you will. 
You can almost hear oh. it swooshing. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and that's how they get um, when our modems do it too. You know, that's how they get more data in the same amount of bandwidth. They, you know, they modulate it as a group of uh, carriers out there on the um, on the bandwidth that you've got. And, you know, they, they look at the amplitudes and, okay, that represents these bits. And then they phase shift it as well. And then that they can add more bits because now we're looking at the phase shift in it, too. And they combine a bunch of different techniques like that. And I'm sure, you know, our, our digital modes are, are using a lot of those tricks. If, I'm, if I remember right from the extra, it's like quadrature. Yeah. Yeah. Modulation and things like Yeah. I've, I've, see, that studying's paying off. It is. Well, <laughs> we will see you in the extra class portion of the band one day, my friend. I haven't, I haven't missed a single episode since you started the extra. Okay. Speaking of that, um, we're about to wrap up the show. We'll be back in just a moment. At the end of each month, it's Amateur Logic's Ham College, the new show for those new to the hobby and those wanting to get into amateur radio. Which of the following is a purpose of the amateur radio service as stated in the FCC rules and regulations? That inductor and capacitor form a tuned circuit. That's how you tune the radio to the frequency that you want. The English language. We lived in town. I liked it. I, I listened to mine a lot. It was really cool because you didn't have to have a battery to power yeah. There's our homemade telegraph station. We can use it for long-distance communications. Oh, like, uh, what, three feet yeah, here? across the table. The answer is B. Voltage was named after Italian physicist Alessandro Volta. We can see we're generating a little bit of electricity there. It's DC. It's always great to go back and get a refresher. It well, sure is. A lot of that stuff, if you've been a ham for a while like we have, you, you don't really think about a lot of that stuff that often. They didn't have electric screwdrivers in those days, so that's why we're not using one. That's why we went primitive with it. Yeah. So let's see if we can hear anything when we, uh, we fire off our spark gap transmitter. Oh, yeah. Well, we didn't build anything or blow up anything today, but... Uh, the night's still young. <laughs> <laughs> but it is getting older. Hey, so. hey I was going to say something about your segment. I'm having some internet problems over here of all, all the times, but uh, there's a cool little program out called Artemis. Have you heard of it? A-R-T-E-M-I-S, I think. And uh, it shows you a little snapshot of the waterfalls, of di- different modes, uh, what it looks like. So if you're curious of what one of the, the modes are you're looking at, you can take that and, and kind of find it. It's cool. Pretty, it's a pretty neat little tool. That is. That's a- cool. There's There used to be a, a site that I used to go to that had little sound bites of what digital signal sounded like, uh, but I can't remember the name of the website. Signal Wiki? I, I think I know what you're talking about. Oh. Yep, I know, I I remember that too. I think you're right, Emil. Oh, cool, Emil. You had a topic that you wanted to present tonight that came from one of our social sources. I don't remember which one it was right now, but maybe you could refresh my memory on it. Okay, yeah. Um, from our dad joke extraordinaire in the chart room, Eddie Kale. <laughs> <laughs> he he was asking 
whether or not I was going to do anything or, or sell some of these these clocks. And, you know, I had a plan hatched, an evil plan to pay for my gasoline for the trip up to Dayton. And some outbreak happened or something we don't ever talk about here. And that that whole thing got derailed. So I'm not I wasn't doing it to making to make any money or anything. But, you know, so it brings me back to uh, episode 120. I think it was about seven minutes into episode 120. I built one of these pie clocks from N0 BEL, I think it is. Um, which is another GitHub program that you can clone right onto your Pi. And I, I, I stepped through the different components, the 7-inch display, touch display, the case that I bought, and it was around $120, if I remember right, so not cheap complaint. But the um, the function of this thing is great, and it's still sitting right behind me and has been working without fail for years since we did that or whenever it was. Um it's always on. I patch it once a week, maybe, you know, just to make sure nothing bad goes wrong. But the uh, pieces part. So what I think what I'm going to do is update the pieces parts. You know, they, they've been through a few iterations of the software where the API, where you get the weather information from, used to be Google. Now it's um, or Weather Underground. Now it is Dark Sky sources hmm. of data. And there's an API. So... I think I'll do a, a little update and publish it out there for our people to be able to see it and do it, and, and along with the pieces that I used for it. In that, in that video in episode 120, I did cover that. So I don't really plan on selling them, if you will, but I, I will um, you know, te- show people how to, how to get to them. And yeah, the, the outbreak foiled my master plan for Dayton for these things, but oh well. So... You're saying you ran out of time to work on the clock. <laughs> the, the time ran out while I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got one running here. Tommy's got one in the background. Before the show started. <laughs> yeah, there's some, better, there's some better information, like especially ham-oriented uh, clocks um, for the pie. You know, there's, a bunch, there's two or three things out there for it. Yeah. And Mike, yeah, I this think one, this one's pretty nice. I'll be doing a segment on this one soon. Cool. Yeah, I thought about doing a segment on that one myself, but uh, whoever you know, if you do it, then you can just save the image for me, and I'll copy yours. Okay. <laughs> Mike, I think you've got one final email to round out the show tonight. I do, and it's from Ryan Starvaggi, and I hope I pronounced your uh, last name correctly, uh, Brian. But uh, anyway, his handle is Starby10. Hello, folks. I have a radio, shortwave, medium wave, long wave, air, receiver, a CB radio, a base scanner, a handheld scanner, a two-meter radio, and an AC-DC power supply at my desk. Some of these electrical devices are interfering with one another if I have them on all at the same time. I can tell by when I move something on one radio that the other one responds. Sometimes I get ghosting, whereas whereas my shortwave channel receiver will be broadcasting on my 2-meter radio, but two totally different frequencies, of course. Like I got a broadcast at 
13.296 or 269 kilohertz are or actually that's 13,269 kilohertz and is broadcasting on my 2 meter radio at 144 megahertz or something like that. My question is, can I build a wooden box for the desktop with separate compartments for each device and line it with foil such as aluminum or copper? to keep each device from affecting one another when on, or what should I do? Well, um, that's a good question. You could do that, but I think if you could separate the uh, radios, obviously I think you're getting leakage from one of the local oscillators in the receivers, uh, and that's that's uh, what's causing the problem. So other than that... Um, or maybe try rearranging them in a different order on your shelves. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that, George? Uh, I would say you could try that if the device has an antenna on it and you put it in an aluminum foil box. It's not going to receive very well anymore. But, yeah, you might try that, try separating them. And I think I'm, I'm with you. I think uh, some of it's being caused by the local oscillators in these radios. And that is an old trick that um, we used to do some back in the 70s. You know, everybody was in the 60s and 70s listening to AM radio. FM really hadn't caught on much in the early 70s. If you found somebody blasting away their stereo, or not a stereo, it was actually a mono, somebody blasting away their AM radio in a parking lot or at a stoplight or something, you pulled up beside them, you could take your car radio and tune it exactly 455 kilohertz away, and it would their their radio would just start squealing because it was hearing your local oscillator. So um, it's exactly the same kind of thing I believe that he's experiencing right there. Is just you know the these uh, the oscillators in these devices are interfering with each other. Yeah, I don't. I mean, you can try that. You can try grounding uh, all of them to a common ground if they're in metal cases. Perhaps that would work. Um, yeah, that that's just one of those things you're going to have to experiment with. I would say, if you just want to hang out with a bunch of cool people, virtually hang out with them, share stories and useless information. <laughs> or, or useful information. Where might you do that, Emil? Approved method would be the one. One of the methods would be Facebook.com groups amateurlogic.tv. Well, it's like a bunch of us, and uh, we're all talking, sharing pictures, funnies, tomfooleries, and some ham information, ham radio information in there. If you were a stalker and you wanted to follow us, where could you do that, Tommy? Well, you don't have to be a stalker, but uh, we're on Twitter at Amateur Logic. We also have at Ham College. And if if you just want to hang out in a group, Mike, where where might you do that? That would be at groups.io slash g slash Amateur Logic. All those are, are excellent choices there. That's one of the few places you can hang out in a group and still be, uh, what is it, uh, social? Physically distanced. distanced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go.
That's where you can catch up with us during the month. And anytime we're going to be shooting a show or we've just released one, you'll get all the details there at all those locations. And uh, do share them, you know, with with your mom and them. <laughs> mom and them? Yep. <laughs> and one other thing we mentioned, Dan, a little bit earlier, and you know, the uh, with the cool on the air light. Well, he moonlights in our wiki by putting all our show notes together over there, and we really appreciate it. It's amateurlogic.tv slash wiki. You can find out uh, what's in each episode right there, and, uh, you know, most of the time we've got the links that we mentioned in the show for the different projects or things that we might be working on, and we really appreciate Dan doing that for us. It's a big help. And with that, I think, uh, guys, it's it's a wrap. I think we right. we've got uh, oh at least enough uh, for one or two shows here. Uh, but it was a fun night, you know. We and as uh, Glenn has mentioned before in the chat room, we didn't have anything else to do anyway. So. <laughs> Uh, we appreciate Glenn. Yep, everyone watching tonight. And before we get out, let's just run around the horn one more time. Tommy, any final thoughts for our viewers tonight? Uh, no, just uh, you already know the routine, the, the social stuff. So I'm not going to go through all that. But uh, appreciate you guys hanging with us, and uh, I hope to see some of you in two weeks for Ham College. Yep. Email. Oh, I will be there for him college. I'm getting this extra. So, uh, everybody, stay safe and practice uh, what we're <laughs> practice whatever you're going to practice to stay safe. So, yeah. <laughs> and Mike. <laughs> I was just uh, there's some uh, funny stuff going on in the chat room, but uh, on on a more serious note. Uh, Kevin, uh, ZL1KFM, was asking if, if we still have snow. Well, uh, to answer you, Kevin, uh, just where it's been shaded from the sun, but although the last two mornings I've woken up to about a centimeter of snow, but by the time noon rolls around, it's it's melted away. Wow. It's hard to believe snow this time of the year for us Southerners. Yeah. We don't really hardly ever see it this far south in the deep of winter. Yeah, it was frigid today here. It was like 60. Yeah. Wow. And the wind was blowing, and we got... Yeah, windy windy here, too, last couple of days. I'll say it again. Thanks for being here. We always appreciate... Uh, people watching the shows you know send us some emails you can you can find our contact information there at amateurlogic.tv we we've got all our email addresses posted it's pretty simple it's just whoever's name at amateurlogic.tv send us some and you know we could read your email on the next episode or if not the next one maybe the next one because i save a queue of them there so that um yeah, know, same we, here. We can find out what's on people's minds. Seven three. Everybody, stay safe. Join us at the end of the month for uh, the next Ham College. And boy, those 
those extra questions are getting tough in there. And we've been <laughs> so far uh, to emails to like, there's been plenty of buzzer action going on with wrong answers. So well, I'm right there with y'all answering wrong in the chat room. Yeah, well, you're not alone. You're in good company. That's right. <laughs> All right. And keep those cards and letters coming. Exactly. Seven three I've everybody. Say that. Yep, seven, seven three, three everybody. Seven, three. it'd be interesting to look at that email you've got like a permanent smile on your face <laughs> uh, let me stop my video hold on a sec okay i mean i knew it was amazing stuff but i didn't know um it's paralyzing is that yeah. any better Can yeah come back yeah you're back <laughs>